Good morning all, Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a great start for today's podcast. Podcast. We have a familiar face, familiar guest, Scott Witt. I'm a friend and actuary. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Steve? Good. Good. Going a mile a minute just with everything going on with the industry and I think people just the uncertainty in the market and such, but it's it's going at a fast pace. How about you? Yeah. Well, it's good to be busy. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> right on. Well, today what I want to talk about is something that you and I have discussed in the past. I think you've seen it your entire career, and you can correct me if I'm wrong since being in the industry. Uh, just the idea of, you know, call it premium financing, leverage when it comes to cash value life insurance policies, meaning taking loans at a low interest rate and funding a policy. And we can talk directly about premium financing, can even talk about some things that, um, and it's just popped in my mind where we see people borrowing from their life insurance policies to fund the policy further. Um, And just kind of the pros and cons there, like why it sometimes looks good on paper, but just from an actuarial perspective, what to be aware of. That way, whenever you're moving forward with a a strategy as a consumer, you've got the insight to know, okay, here's what it looks like, but I need to be aware of these two or three things happening so I don't run into buyer's remorse after the fact. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I think maybe just as a starting point, maybe just kind of discussing what the concept of leveraging means and, and clarifying what external and internal leveraging mean. I think that might be helpful to the listener. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Why don't we start with external leverage? Because I think that's what most people are often proposed, which premium financing is a great example, which would be if I want to purchase a, a life insurance policy, instead of funding it with out of pocket dollars, my own money, I can go to a bank or lender, they'll fund the policy, and usually I'm liable to just pay the interest and then I can use the cash value to exit down the road. When it comes to those strategies, um, I know a lot of people often solicit you to review those just with your skill set, knowing how to first analyze a policy for maximum performance, and then two, looking at the overall return, just leveraging the, the lender loan rate compared to the policy, Like if I came to you with a policy saying, hey, could you check this out? Kind of what are some things you would say, all right, you know, here's what I would typically look for. Like what what goes through your head from a a bullet point process as far as what to look for in these situations? Yeah, sure. And just uh, just to kind of piggyback on your on your leveraging definition there, I think anytime you are assuming that you can borrow money at a lower rate than you are turning around and reinvesting it, you've got a leverage situation and positive leverage would be when you're reinvesting at a higher rate. Of course, leverage can turn upside down and it can be negative leverage if you are borrowing at a higher rate than what you are in turn investing at. But of course, nobody nobody illustrates negative leverage situations. These premium financing deals are always positive leverage and you're borrowing at a really low rate and turning around and investing it at a high rate and you're basically making something from nothing. I mean, right. in the most extreme premium financing proposals, there may be no out-of-pocket outlay whatsoever, and you can convert that into millions and millions of death benefit or, or income down the road. And you can see why these types of illustrations are very, very appealing. Um, and when you try to calculate a rate of return on some of these, it's actually infinite because if you're not putting out any money, but you're getting something in return, the, the typical rate of return calculation 
doesn't even make sense. Right. And so you'd ask specifically, what would I look at in a external premium financing arrangement? <clears throat> the, the, the first thing I would say is that I, I usually have sort of a mindset of like just calming everybody down. Like you're chomping at the bit here about how, it, you know, it looks like free money. It, it looks like, you're, like I said, you're creating something from nothing. Let's just dial down the enthusiasm a little bit and understand that these these proposals have a long track record of over-promising and under-delivering. That doesn't necessarily mean that they can't still deliver attractive returns, but I've seen time and time again, the benefits of a premium financing proposal are, or, or arrangement are highlighted in the proposals and the risks or the downside are, are minimized or even ignored. And so what I really want is for all the parties involved to see a fair and balanced presentation. And that, you know, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Is the illustration for the product, um, is, the illustration, is the illustration credible? What kind of product is it? Does, does that product have a track record of, of over-illustrating and, and underperforming. Um, what about on the borrowing side of things? Are we assuming that the incredibly low LIBOR rates that are in play right now, are we, exist, are, are we assuming that those are gonna exist forever? Are we confident that the bank isn't going to increase that spread? Like, could it potentially be a teaser rate right now to, to get an initial loan and every year you have to refinance and you're subject to, to, the, to the whims of that bank. And yes, you can maybe go get another bank, but you just need to understand if that initial borrowing rate is, is too good to be true. And then you have to look a little bit deeper in, in terms of the mechanics and what is there an exit strategy? And if things don't go according to plan, does the policy have significant cash buildup in the early years that give you the flexibility to get out of this thing without too much damage? Or are you, are you on the hook for 15 or 20 years and how is this going to play out? And, and what I see a lot of times is that when you give a fair and balanced presentation, it's not quite as much of a slam dunk. Right. And, it, it, and if, if done properly and you, you optimize the product and you minimize the risks, usually the worst case scenario isn't that bad. But if you went into this arrangement thinking you were going to get tens of millions of death benefit or millions of dollars of income, and the worst case scenario turns out to be that you basically got nothing, you generated no, ex, no additional value, then maybe that really is a disaster. So a lot of it comes back to the, to the objectives of the client and how much they're counting on these depicted scenarios unfolding. Right. That was a good description. So setting expectations and really having transparency. So if I'm going to speak on it from the agent side and what I'll try and show people, because often we have people that want to see premium financing situations because they heard about it. They saw examples and I say, hey, we can definitely show that. And I'll show the, the best case scenario. Hey, if you borrow at these different rates, here's what it looks like. And here's what the present uh, dividend rate projects based on different carriers. But then by the way, if the product underperforms or if the loan rate is higher, here's a scenario of a conservative dividend, midpoint all the way through. Here's the guarantee, it's probably not gonna be this bad, but what I like to look at is in a conservative or worst case scenario, if you see it and you say, okay, I see that, 
would it would it be the end of the world or there's no way I want to do it looking at those conservative numbers like if I'm a buyer, I'd want to see that first, knowing that, okay, this could happen. How realistic is it? Uh, maybe not that much, but at the same time, don't just show me the best. And then under delivers like that, I feel is the big pain point. And where I've seen and heard of these lawsuits in the past pop up with these financing cases, it's usually something like that, like information was not transparent enough for the client because they didn't know to ask. Like they didn't know what questions to ask. And the advisor, of course, is trying to be upfront or, you know, maybe they just want to get the sale because these are typically big cases. Um, and that's kind of what you can help look for and just provide transparency as far as, hey, here's what to look for, A, B, C, and D. Let's start with the actual policy performance. Then let's look at the loan rate, make adjustments there, and just kind of break it down as if you were the client. And correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, no. And and I think, you know, I think sometimes people assume be, because they hear me say so many bad things about premium financing proposals. I think that they maybe incorrectly assume that I'm against premium financing arrangements. Uh, absolutely not. And, and really, it just comes down to math. If you can borrow at, let's say, 3% indefinitely, if you can turn around and reinvest the proceeds into a vehicle that delivers a higher net yield, so net of expenses, net of taxes, if there are any, and of course with life insurance, you don't have any, but but a bottom, bottom line return, if you can get a return that's higher than 3%, there's some leverage to be had. Yeah. So as long as you're investing in a vehicle that can deliver a higher return than what you're borrowing at, there's going to be some positive that results from that arrangement. The question is, it's a question of magnitude. Yeah. And is your advantage going to be 100 basis points? Is it going to be 200? Is it going to be 300? And when you look at an original, or when you look at a sales proposal or a, a premium financing proposal that is assuming a value-created spread that is at the high end of what we've ever seen historically and assuming that it lasts forever, you're seeing income proposals and death benefit proposals that really have a very low likelihood of coming to fruition. And that's when things start to get dicey is when a client is counting on the numbers that are illustrated. So I think you gave some great advice there in terms of looking at some different illustrated numbers and whether it's bringing back the dividend rate or boosting up the loan rate or some of both. I think those are those are great things to look at, and I think asking questions about you know what what would we do ten or fifteen years from now if it's becoming apparent that this is not generating the generating the kind of value that we wanted, or heaven forbid, the the bank says we no longer are interested in financing this and we need to unwind it. If you can't find another financing source and you had to exit out of this, how much could you lose? You know, if you had to get out of it how much of a shortfall would there be between the cash value on the policy and the total loan plus interest if, if you haven't been servicing that. But but whatever your debt is, what's the total obligation there? And if sometimes I find it insightful to take a, to to subtract those two numbers and you have sort of a this is what you would owe if you bailed out of the program at any point in time. And to me, the most appealing programs are one where you don't ever, you know, have a ton of risk and where you fairly quickly get to a point where your cash value is actually greater than the total indebtedness. And you don't have to worry about 
additional collateral being posted as well. Yeah, I, I like that. You must have read my mind because that's where I was going next. <laughs> as far as the, the policy design, more or less, you're speaking to there to say, when, at what point in time do I have cash value that is greater than the loan balance in the event that the bank pulls out, I want out of this, whatever happens, when if you've got more cash value in that product and you want to exit, you don't have to come up with another source. You've got the cash in the product to satisfy the lender's outstanding loan. And to that point too, I mean, I, uh, I mean I have to, I'll talk about policy design all day so we won't go there today. Um, but with different companies and products, like we have a model, uh, I put a simple model together that will use different loan interest rate assumptions. We'll just plug the illustration values in and such. And I do like an example, those, those highly cash value products or products specifically designed for premium finance situations where you'll, you'll see a lot of times a break even between years three and five. You can even see 95% of your payment in cash value in the first year, which, I mean, if you're financing, call it a million dollars per year, and you've got a cash value of $950,000, that's a $50,000 spread which is a minimal amount of collateral compared to a basic policy or basic finance situation where the same million goes in. And if it's a higher comp product, you might see anywhere from, it's probably not zero, call it 30 to 50% of that million show up in cash value right off the bat. And then you've got to come up with collateral for the difference. Yeah, so that's a great point. I, I, I would caution um, that there is a distinction between products that are artificially manipulated to produce high early cash values that can mask the true level of agent compensation. And then there are products that have high early cash values because agent compensation has been minimized. And so it's hard for a layperson to look at a, at a policy and understand the difference be between those two but if you look out, let's say, at the 10th year cash value, it becomes easier to recognize the difference between a product that has had early cash values artificially inflated and a product that has high early cash values precisely because you've put more money, you've, you've taken money from the agent's pocket, essentially, and put it into the policy owner's pocket. Yeah, you've maximized it. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, and, and one other point on that, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of unfortunate, but some companies in premium financing arrangements may actually restrict your ability to use a blended product and they they may force you towards a full commission type design under the guise of it's safer somehow or it's got more downside protection. It, it's ironic because nobody's buying these premium financing proposals because of anything related to guarantees or anything on the downside. It's all this upside potential. And in my experience, you have far more safety with a with an optimal design that has high cash value, the kind of safety that somebody who who's engaging in a premium financing proposal is looking for. They're, they're not talking about what if we get in a doomsday environment yeah. and guaranteed cash values are suddenly in play? If, if that's the case, premium financing is a disaster because you're borrowing at a much higher rate than the rate of return that you're going to get within your policy. So to me, it's much more relevant that you can boost up the cash value, minimize everybody's risks, 
um, the bank shouldn't be as concerned because there's not as much of a gap between the cash value and the total indebtedness. But not every company sees it that way. And I know you and I have, have had some discussions offline about that, that, that some companies, um, and, and, it, and it might be a convenient stance because it, it turns into a lot more compensation for their field force, but, but some companies are reluctant to use a blended product in a premium financing proposal, which which makes almost no sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I hear you there. And some of them are, are companies that I, I like, like larger companies, but when it comes to finance situations, like some carriers just say, hey, we like an all-base premium design. You can use a, a limited pay product, which credits 30, maybe 40% at best of your payment to cash value right off the bat, but it takes 10 plus years to break even which means you've got to have that additional collateral for that period of time with the financing deal. And that's that's really just where, call it the importance of options come into play, like looking at different carriers and such, because not all companies are like that. Um, and if you're, you're a potential client of someone looking at a premium finance deal and you're told, well, this company only allows this type of design for a premium finance situation, well, then as a consumer, the question to ask, I would ask, well, can we look at different companies then that would actually satisfy a better design where I'm in a better position? Because the, the answer is yes, there are carriers out there. Most carriers do, but some are restrictive with that. Um, and they give their reasons if they think it's safer because of past uh, cases with premium financing and lawsuits is what I've heard. And then some people are just more upfront. They say, well, all base premium policy is more profitable for the company, the agent. So that's why we like it. I'm like, well, thanks for being honest. I mean, that's not really the route I'm interested in going, but that's where options come into play and having the knowledge, knowing what to ask. This way I don't get stuck in a deal with the finance situation, which is a big deal because it's a, often a, a large amount of money and find out after the fact I could have done it better. Yeah, I totally agreed. And, and so do you do you want to segue and talk about some of the internal financing arrangements that we see? That I think, yeah, would be fantastic. So internal borrowing, why don't you, if you want to start there, or I can give an overview kind of like a, of what that is, internal financing. Yeah, so I can I can do the same. <laughs> I, I can do um, give, a, give a similar description. Um, now with internal financing, you see a lot of proposals that show um, loans, policy loans being generated inside the policy. And often it is to um, generate income, but it also might be to pay off an external premium financing loan. If, if, uh, if a demonstration needs to show that after 15 years, the premium financing loan is going to be retired, sometimes people will just generate a big policy loan and use those proceeds to pay off the premium financing loan in the demonstration. So it really works the same way. If you have the ability to borrow at a lower rate from the insurance company than the internal rate of return that you're earning within the policy, then you're actually generating value. And you know, they're, they're, companies have, have gotten a little bit smarter and regulators have gotten a little bit smarter and there are more limitations placed on how much of, a, of an arbitrage you can illustrate. But to, to give an example, you know, there's a lot of policies out there that currently have a, the ability to borrow at, let's say, a 5% rate. And there are at least some types of policies that illustrate returns that are even higher than that. And so at a minimum, the loans aren't that damaging. And at best, they may actually illustrate 
um, some enhancement. And in those situations, the more you borrow, the earlier you borrow, um, the better and, and the longer you borrow because that borrowing activity is actually just generating value. And the holy grail of proposals and illustrations is sort of a combination, you know, using external premium financing to generate all this internal policy value. And then on the back end, when the, when the, the illustrated values start getting distributed, you use internal um, leverage and internal financing and you put that together and you can see some income illustrations with premium financing proposals that um, are simply amazing. Yeah, and, and am I, <laughs> I think that's nuts personally, just with experience and like what I see actually happen because you said, a, <laughs> you mentioned a key word in there that you can illustrate a policy with a loan rate of its 5%, maybe it's a UL or IUL, the 4% rate, whatever, and illustrate a stronger earning rate on the policy. And if it's non-participating, I mean, participating on non-direct recognition, it's on everything. Like that can, can look very good. It can illustrate very well. But like every time I see that kind of stuff pitched, like illustrations, like it's going to work. But then the reality, the policy often underperforms the, the net IRR compared to what was projected the loan rate doesn't change and that consumer's not in the same position that they were told they were going to be. Um, that's my hesitancy from that, just from more actual case studies that I see with that kind of stuff. Um, and, and you can, I'd love to hear both sides of it, but I mean, that's just every time I see that, I'm like, man, I have not seen a scenario where that has really come out on top aside from an illustration, which makes it look good, but that's not, that's not reality. Yeah, a couple thoughts on that. I mean, I get really nervous whenever I see a life insurance illustration or if I have a client that has a policy that is really heavily loaned because there's a good chance that they have a lot of risk that they just don't recognize. And, you know, you and I both know that the dreaded surrender squeeze is, is one of the absolute worst things that can happen to a policy. When a policy gets heavily loaned and it's right on the cusp of falling apart because the net cash value has, has gone to almost zero. And now the policyholder is faced with the decision of paying a prohibitively expensive amount of money just to keep the policy in force. Or if they don't pay that money, the policy is going to lapse. And because of the way that, that life insurance accounting works, there's going to be a massive gain on, on that policy in many situations, in spite of the fact that there's no cash left in the policy to help pay the tax bill. And so the, the only way out of that situation is for the policyholder to die while, while the policy is still in force. And, and I mean, let's, let's be honest, that's, that's an option that, you know, many people are not going to be in favor I don't of. Like that option. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I get nervous anytime an illustration or an existing policy has a massive loan because there, there is the possibility of the surrender squeeze risk, but there's also the possibility that you can see a spike in interest rates and, and, and a spike that is not mirrored by a corresponding jump in the crediting rates. Right. Um, the loan rate is gonna move a lot quicker than the crediting rate is gonna move for an insurance company. And while it, while it may be a fairly unlikely scenario, it is something that is somewhat outside of your control when a loan rate is being set to an index, which you know is, is very common. Yeah. Um, the other general comment I have is that 
for any illustration that looks good with internal borrowing, I kind of chuckle to myself and say, well, you should see what that looks like if we switch to external borrowing. So for anybody that, that thinks that borrowing from their current policy is the greatest thing since sliced bread, I would submit to them, why don't you look at a collateralized loan from a bank? Yeah. And you can usually get a substantially lower interest rate from the bank using your cash value and your life insurance policy as collateral, and maybe you can accomplish the same thing. And so that, that sometimes can slow down the enthusiasm a little bit, or it can just pour gasoline onto the fire because now you know they've got something that looks even better. Um, so anyway, a couple thoughts on the internal borrowing that I've seen. Yeah, no, no, thanks for that. And the collateral loans, I mean, those, I, I do like those, especially now, um, just as I measure that net IRR in a policy compared to the borrowing rate. rate. Um, one thing you touched on there, so with the, the internal financing too, or internal borrowing, the comment as far as interest rates, so a loan rate on a policy, if it's variable, or just to call it the interest rate environment, adjusting faster than a company's crediting rate, and if we're talking whole life specifically, the dividend rate, that is a, a good point, Scott, because like the, the common sales pitch is, hey, if interest rates go up and you see these loan rates go up, you should expect dividends to go up as well because they've always followed interest rates historically, which has some truth to it, but there is always a, a lag there, meaning if interest rates shoot up or if they come down, there's always a span of time, sometimes it's several years before you start to see the dividends start to follow. So I mean, it's that you're if you're running a track race, you're 100 meters behind before you actually get around the corner and start to mirror where the other guy was or catch up to where he was. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I know. I mean, I know you're a younger guy than I am, so I, I think I'm. I, I can confidently say this, but our entire working careers we've basically been in a declining interest rate environment that is very attractive, not only for life insurance, but for borrowing to buy life insurance. And so many people have a false sense and, and many advisors who might be 50 or even close to 60 years old have a false sense of confidence that these proposals I've done in the past have worked out pretty well. Like, I, I don't perceive them to be risky because I've got a long track record of clients being pretty happy with these proposals. And what, what they fail to recognize is that I, I don't know how much more we can go. Like, interest rates can't go any lower. And in the near future, the most likely outcome is that borrowing rates are going to go up and dividend rates are going to continue to go down. And so part of my concern with these overall financing arrangements and proposals is that we might be looking at a snapshot in time that is going to look like a mirage 10 years from mm -hmm. now. Yeah. And that's awareness is the big thing to be aware. To be, awareness is the thing to be aware of. <laughs> but that's it. Because of what you see on paper, what could happen looks good. And I mean... Don't get me wrong, if I can pay a little bit of money to create a ton of value with external or internal borrowing, I'd be interested naturally. But it's also having the awareness or having someone point things out to say, yes, it can work, but here's where it has not worked in the past. And often it's due to elements that are outside of your control 
even the agent's control. I mean, you've got a little bit with policy design just to juice the policy, but with the specific interest rate environment, like if borrowing rates go up and dividends come down like that, that will hurt. It'll hurt a policyholder. If dividends stay the same and borrowing rates go up, that that can hurt too. So I just want to see that up front and know, okay, does it still work or am I still comfortable with a more conservative scenario? And if so, then it can work. If not, that's where issues pop up. Yeah, I think I think just setting your expectations low, dialing them back, looking at, at what <clears throat> what the results would look like if this arbitrage was not as as big and as persistent as what is illustrated in the original illustration. And then if you've if you've recalibrated your expectations and you move forward and it turns out to be better than what you had mentally prepared for, then you're going to be happy with it. If if you go into an arrangement and the only thing you've seen is sort of a best case scenario, odds are you're going to be disappointed. Even if it turns out to be pretty good, your frame of mind is going to be such that it's going to feel like uh, some kind of a disappointment or that it didn't meet expectations. And so I just think, I think it's in everybody's best interest to dial back on the expectations. And then if it turns out to be better, everybody's happy. Yeah. And if, if, if by dialing back the expectations a little bit brings you to a point where the arrangement is no longer attractive, I think then you have to question whether or not um, you're, you're properly evaluating the risk reward trade-off of that arrangement. There you go. There you go. And, and you can do that as a disinterested third party, which is one thing I appreciate just about you and your, your company, just the back and forth. Because you can do that. You've got no interest if a sale happens or not. Correct. Yep. I get paid the same yeah. whether somebody buys insurance or whether it's premium financed. I, I have no kickbacks with with lenders or life insurance companies or agents or anybody involved in the process. Yeah. And so that allows me to serve my clients in a true fiduciary capacity. Yeah. Powerful stuff, which I can yeah, we've run into some stuff, just what I've seen lately on that. But that's another topic, <laughs> fiduciaries and stories. Um, in any event, that's I think we covered that thoroughly. Is there anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think it's I don't think it's something that's going away. Um, and you know, I think it can be uh, it can be a great opportunity for the right situation. And and obviously, it's one of those things that that wealthier individuals have access to some of these arrangements that that some less wealthy individuals don't. And so in um, in some cases, there's no doubt there's an element of the rich getting richer and taking advantage of some provisions in the tax code that really were intended more for orphans and widows and widowers wow. and, you know, the, the whole tax-free nature of, of the death benefit and the inside buildup and, and all of that. And you wonder if at some point the industry is going to strangle the golden goose here with premium financing arrangements and, and life insurance as an investment. But for the time being, it's impossible for the IRS or the government to draw a distinction between those different types. I mean, they've certainly tried with modified endowment contract rules and definition of life insurance. But I know one of the things we're going to talk about on another podcast someday, they, they recently just took a step that actually makes life insurance even more attractive as an as an investment than it was yeah. um, a year ago if we were having this conversation. Mm -hmm. So while 
while there's a chance that the IRS may figure it out, I think for the time being, there, there no doubt is an opportunity that exists for, for wealthy individuals to deploy some of their capital in life insurance as an investment. And for those that are willing to take some additional risk and understand the risk reward trade-offs, they may be able to leverage that even further with some sort of a premium financing arrangement. Yeah. But you know, buyer beware, you, you've got to understand that, um, you, you need to fully understand the risks and rewards of, of a proposal. And if, if, you, um, if you are fully aware of those, then I'm not opposed to a premium financing arrangement being executed. I just want people to have an awareness of what they're getting into. Yeah, due diligence. And if you don't know what to look for, have someone that does. That's the big thing. Yeah, cool. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that in the next podcast, the um, change in the industry. It's interesting. I love digging into it. Um, well, thanks so much for your time. As always, much appreciated. If anyone listening or watching would like to contact Scott, we've got his contact info below. Feel free to reach out anytime. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thank you. Take care.